Stop me if you've heard this one before. A person heads out of their home to forage. It's for food, usually. In some versions, it's for a substitute for food, like money, but we'll keep it simple here. They're extremely hungry, or at least they know they will be soon. There's some desperation to their foraging. And this is important, because it'll help to justify a later decision. After a day of working, either to earn enough money for food or trying to find food directly, they're ready to call it quits. Then, miraculously, they stumble upon something. Now, this might not be something that perhaps a person would normally consider food. In fact, it might fall very clearly in the category of not food. An unidentified animal part, maybe. Or, and this is the version you're probably more familiar with, a very identifiable human part. A liver, maybe. Or a toe. But remember, our protagonist is very desperate. Usually they're desperately hungry. But sometimes they might be desperate for other, darker reasons. And desperate times call for desperate entrees. Our protagonist wraps up the dismembered member and takes it home. Now, as grotesque as the body part might seem, there's one consistent element to the story. It's absolutely delicious when cooked properly. And our protagonist is something of a genius when it comes to cooking up mystery meat. Gumbo, stew, or braised liver? That body part makes for a delicious dinner. Our protagonist might have had hesitations about collecting and cooking the strange item, but they're generally very satisfied with the outcome. They go to bed, and someone comes knocking. Outside, in the darkness, something calls out, bemoaning their missing body part, and making it absolutely clear that they've come to reclaim it. Who's got my tail? Who's got my toe? Our cook is understandably freaked out about the arrival of the Revenant outside. They might take steps to barricade or defend themselves. Maybe they lock up the house. Or release the hounds. But it doesn't do much good. The incomplete Revenant yearns for completion and wants their body part back. Who's got my liver? Our cook, meanwhile, fully aware that said body part is in the process of digestion, swallows an additional serving of dread on top of their dinner. Now, usually this story exists in the oral tradition, meaning that there's an opportunity for the storyteller to ham things up, especially as they describe the Revenant getting closer and closer. At each step, the voice gets louder and louder, calling for its missing part. Who's got my toe? Who's got my liver? Who's got my tail? On the roof, at the front door, in the chimney, up the stairs, at the foot of the bed? Adjust for the architecture as you see fit. Though I should note that open concept floor plans absolutely destroy the suspense in the story. Finally, when the suspense is at a fever pitch, when the cook is terrified out of their mind, and the storyteller's audience at the edge of their seat, the storyteller shrieks, the listeners jump, 
and the creature screams, you have it. Hello, I'm Kari Clements, and this is Trans Arcana, where we take queer looks at the supernatural. Today, we're talking Tailipo and other purloined body parts, where these stories come from, what they might represent, and their strange connection to bodily autonomy. So, odds are good that you have heard this story before. In which case, thank you for being polite and not stopping me regardless though you've probably heard it with a specific name, usually featuring an eponymous body part. The big toe, the golden arm, the liver, taily pole. And chances are, it's probably one of the first ghost stories you heard. Maybe at a sleepover, or around a campfire, or in a wonderful book full of terrifying illustrations. But you know, that's not actually too surprising. Most folklorists note that this story primarily gets passed around from child to child. Not that adults don't tell it too, but it's an interesting case of a story that passes through different circles and picks up bits and pieces from both. And it's been doing this for a very long time. In folklore circles, this story is usually known as The Man from the Gallows. Under Arne Thompson Uther classification, this story is tail type 366. If you're not familiar with the Arne Thompson Uther system, think of it as sort of the Dewey Decimal system for story types. Core versions of stories get numbers, and variants get that number plus a decimal. The Man from the Gallows broadly covers any story in which a corpse has had part of its body stolen, eaten by people, and then returns to reclaim its stolen property. Sometimes it's told in a sort of somber setting, reflecting the passage of time and what it does to the dead. Other times, it's told in what's called a cante fable, a story with sung or chanted sections. If you're used to hearing this story with repeated elements like Tailipo, Tailipo, or Where's my toe? Or my teeny tiny bones. You've probably heard it as a Kante fable. That's your first clue that this story is from an oral tradition, meaning that it gets passed down from person to person, in a village get-together, or around a fire, or at a sleepover. And while some of the earliest written versions of the story are at least 200 years old, most scholars agree that it's much older than that. One of the oldest written versions was collected by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm in Germany. Yes, those Grimms. And the version they collected is probably a little less sing-songy than you've heard it. One night, a woman was preparing to receive guests. They were coming soon, but she had no idea what to cook for them. And I think most of us can sympathize, having been in that situation at one time or another. Then she made a decision that I hope most of us haven't. She went to the gallows, where a dead man was hanging. A corpse left to the elements is never a pretty picture, and it was less so when she was done with it. She pulled out her knife and cut into the body, removing his liver. Again, 
I really hope none of you have ever been this desperate to entertain. She took the liver home and fried it up, seasoning it up and presenting it to her guests, who, I assume, didn't know what exactly they were eating. But either way, they ate it all up and left. Typical dinner guests. At midnight, someone knocked on her door. She got up. She went to her door. In it stood the man from the gallows. His head was bare, his eyes hollow, and a gaping wound yawned from his belly. The woman greeted the man with more bravery than I could muster, asking him a question. And here's where the structure of the story gets sort of question answery. Where is your hair? The wind blew it off. Where are your eyes? The ravens picked them out. Where is your liver? You ate it. Folklorist Sylvia Ann Grider notes the end of the story gets delivered a little differently depending on where you live. In English and North American versions of the story, the storyteller usually shouts the final line of you ate it at someone in the audience going for a big scare. The big scare is definitely the way I'm used to hearing the story, and maybe the way you've heard it too. And maybe that's fitting. There are certainly some cautionary elements of the story, though maybe ones that seem a little outdated to our modern sensibilities. If you want to interpret it in some sort of moral of the story sense, then there's a pretty clear one there. One that maybe feels like it doesn't need to be said? After all, who needs to be told not to eat the dead? Well, according to Sylvia Ann Grider, medieval peasants. There's apparently some record of European peasants feeding on hanged bodies taken down from the gallows. And while we definitely have sympathy for anyone who's in such a dire situation that cannibalism is a necessity, it's still more than a little unsettling. So in that context, the story becomes an explicit warning, promising supernatural consequences for anyone willing to breach that taboo for any reason. Well, for the one reason mostly, hunger. It's always hunger that drives this story. And not like a casual hunger. Not some morbid curiosity about what the dismembered body part might taste like, but rather there is a need for food present in most versions of this story. It might be that the protagonist is so hungry that they're willing to violate the dead for food. Or it might be that someone else's need for food drives them. In the Grimm's version, the woman does not have food to feed her guests. And that's what drives her to harvest the liver from a hanged man. I will say, she's a much more dedicated hostess than I am. In his lauded Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series, Alvin Schwartz tells a version that's similar to the Grimm's, except that our forensic chef in this version, named Mina Flint, is preparing the liver for her abusive husband, George. In this version, George buys a grocery store liver, presumably not human, for Mina to prepare for him. Mina cooks it beautifully, but in the process, accidentally eats all of it. 
Afraid for her own safety, she raids a nearby church where an old woman is being prepped for a service. And in Schwartz's version, a bit of karmic justice is served up alongside the liver. As when the ghost comes calling, Mina tells her that her abusive husband George has her liver. And the story ends with George screaming. We don't often see human hunger at the center of scary stories. Usually it's some sort of monster that craves human flesh that ends up being the driving factor. The werewolf that can't control its monstrous appetite. The vampire's unquenchable thirst for blood. The zombie's hunger for brains. But in these stories, it's a very human hunger that drives the story forward. Hunger and desperation. Sure, there's an angry revenant that's peeved that somebody stole its liver. But there's another level of monstrosity in these stories. A violation of something many people would consider the ultimate taboo. Eating another human being. And maybe that's what makes these stories so frightening? They ask us, how far would we go to feed ourselves? To avoid starvation? Or to keep ourselves safe? Maybe the most frightening element of these stories is not the ghost that comes calling, but the implication that in order to stay alive, this is a line that any one of us might someday cross. And I'm going to consider myself lucky that I've never been in a position where I've had to make that call. And I hope that none of you have been there either. But there's an interesting outlier to this set of stories. A little exception to our Arne Thompson Uther Tale Type 366, where the focus isn't on eating human flesh, and it's a little friend named Taily Poe. Now the way I've heard it is that there had been a lack of wild game that season, or at least what there was had been barely worth the buckshot. The hunter was hungry. It was just him and his three dogs living in his cabin, and he was barely scraping up enough to feed himself, much less his three hounds. So with his belly empty and his temper poor, he was ready to nab anything that came his way that evening. He and his dogs set out to catch something, anything, for supper. At dusk, he spotted something in the shadows. Something with great, big, yellow eyes. The hunter took aim and shot at it. But missed. Mostly. The creature had fled, but what was left in the brush was its tail. Barely enough for a meal on its own, but maybe worthwhile in a stew. So the hunter gathered his hounds and went home, taking the tail with him. That night, he cooked up a stew, throwing in the last few withered vegetables he had on a shelf. Some salt, some pepper, and finally, the tail he'd shot off the strange creature. The ingredients simmered, steam rising up the chimney of the little house. It was a fine stew, and the hunter ate it up, making sure his hounds got some too. The hunter went to bed, full for the first time in weeks. 
when a scratching on the roof woke him up. He was used to life in the woods. Things scratched at the roof all the time. Things usually did. He lived, after all, in the woods. Things, however, didn't usually call out in a high-pitched, raspy voice. Understandably frightened, the man yelled for his three dogs, sending them out into the night to bark down whatever it was on the roof. They were hunter's dogs, used to chasing down game in the brush. Hell, the three of them had once brought down a massive buck on their own. They were more than a match for any rooftop thing. There was a chorus of howls, scrabbling, crashing through the brush, and yelps. He thought he saw a glimpse of glowing yellow eyes in the darkness, but that was all. After a period of time, his dogs returned. Well, two of them did. The hunter called for his third dog, but it did not return. At least, he thought, the thing on the roof was gone. So he returned to sleep, only to be awoken shortly. The scrabbling was back a rustling in the bushes outside of his house. The hunter looked out his window, only to have his gaze met with two luminous yellow eyes peering in from the darkness. Muffled through the glass, the hunter could still hear the creature's voice. The hunter yelled for his dogs again sending them out into the night and after the thing. Again, the dogs bayed. The eyes vanished, and the animals disappeared into the darkness. But only one dog returned. It carried no trophy, no evidence of the mysterious creature vanquished. More than a little shaken, the hunter tried to get back to sleep. And sleep came in fits and starts, only to be broken by the creak of a door, and the scritchy scratch, long claws on a wooden floor. A voice hissed in the darkness. His eyes flew open and he shouted for his remaining dog. There was the creature creeping in through the door of the cabin, its yellow eyes glowing like lanterns. The hound flew at the creature, and before the man could call the dog off, it chased the creature out into the darkness. The hunter called for his dog, over and over, but it didn't return. Certain of the worst, the man closed the door, barricading it the best he could. He grabbed a handful of nails and pounded them in, sealing it shut. And so he waited and waited. Sure enough, the scrabbling came back, along with the creature's voice. Daily bow. Daily bow. Give me back my daily the hunter sat in his bed, clutching his gun, and listening in fear as the thing scrabbled up the side of his house, across the roof, and down the chimney.
With shaking hands, he aimed his gun at the fireplace, hoping to catch the creature when it emerged. At the first sign of the creature's black fur, he fired, but whatever it was was too fast, moving like a guttering candle flame. Shot after shot exploded the cabin around him, each time striking where the creature was not. And each time, the creature moved closer and closer across the room towards him. And soon, his gun clicked empty. Finally, the creature perched at the foot of the hunter's bed. It had yellow eyes, the size of dinner plates, fixed on the hunter. Black fur bristled, and long claws gouged into the wood of his bed. Terrified, the hunter yelled, I ain't got your taily po. Liar! And I hear that if you find yourself in those woods now, you might stumble across the ruins of an old hunter's cabin. And you might even hear something in the woods singing to itself. I love that story. I'm a sucker for a good monster, and Taily Poe is top-notch. Taily Poe is so popular that many people consider it a cryptid, a legendary beast that still stalks the wild forests of North America. And it's in spite of the fact that Taily Poe only really appears in this one story, which, as we covered, has its roots in a much older European tradition. That said, though, a few things set the story apart from some of the other Man from the Gallows versions we've seen. The biggest difference is that this time we're not really dealing with an angry human corpse. Rather, what we have here is something very much alive, and very much not human. So how does this change the story? Well, at the very least, it's no longer a story warning against cannibalism. If anything, it seems to be focused entirely on the perils of encountering and eating strange animals. Some storytellers frame the story as a warning against animal cruelty, but there are a few problems with that. If you've grown up with the story of Taily Poe, you might be surprised to find that it's a uniquely American adaptation of the story. As opposed to the older Man from the Gallows tales that sprung up around medieval Europe, the Taylipo variation emerged in America, possibly in the Appalachian region, or the American South. Which makes sense. Lots of deep dark woods or swamp in those areas for a mystery creature to dwell. If you've ever walked through the Blue Ridge forests or the bayous of the Mississippi Delta, you wouldn't have a hard time imagining a wide-eyed creature like the Taylipo scrabbling its way through the trees. And while it's not a story about cannibalism, most folklore scholars agree that it's still a story about hunger. Rather than reflecting a taboo against eating human flesh, it's about the desperation of the hunter for any meat, even mystery meat, as well as the difficulty and the ultimately failed task of trying to survive off of that meat. 
it reflects a very real fear of famine. The hunter, as presented at the beginning of the story, lives off of the land, and because of a poor game season is extremely close to starvation. And to a lesser degree, he's also responsible for the well-being of his dogs. The hunter, quite literally, has mouths to feed. It's, if anything, reflective of frontier life, or even just living off the grid, and how hunger can be a dire concern. It's the same desperate hunger that drives the hunter to eat strange and ultimately dangerous meat that also drives Mina Flint, as well as the old woman trying to feed guests. While the story doesn't present the same moral about not eating human flesh, it still asks the same question. What would you risk in order to feed yourself? How far would you go to stay alive? To satisfy a hunger? But what if you had a different hunger to satisfy? What if the desire, the need that you had, wasn't for food, but for money? The way I've heard it is that there was once a woman with a golden arm, like made of actual precious metal gold. You'll hear different reasons as to why she had a golden arm. Some folks say she was magically born with it, or that it was an expensive prosthetic that she was fitted with. But what was important was that she had a golden arm, and that she died, and that she had a husband who loved that golden arm more than her. You can see where this is going. After her death, her husband dug up her grave and removed her arm. In grislier retellings, he cuts it off of her body. He took her arm home with him and hid it under his pillow. And as for what he planned to do with it, well, that changes from story to story. He might have just wanted the valuable thing for himself, or he might have been planning to sell it. Let's face it, those are the best case reasons for stealing your dead wife's arm. His wife's ghost appeared to him the following night. I mean, obviously, right? In the dark, she moaned. Who's got my golden arm? And while the man might deny having it, or might try to misdirect her, sometimes for the requisite three question and answer exchanges, the ghost of the wife comes closer and closer, and eventually screams, You have it! This might be the most widespread iteration of this story. Not because it's been published the most, though big literary names like Mark Twain have written their own versions, but because it has its very own kid-to-kid conduit. Chances are that you've heard the story at a sleepover, or from a childhood friend, or an older sibling. Sylvia Ann Grider notes that the story has sort of a parallel existence, appearing sporadically in collections, but that most people's first encounter with it is from their childhoods, hearing it from other kids. And that tracks, right? It's got that fun cante fable rhythm. Who's got my golden arm? Who's got my golden arm? It's got no complicated elements like sending out dogs, or keeping track of parts of a house. 
and it doesn't have the awkwardness of people eating corpses. Anyone who's tried to tell the man from the gallows version to kids knows that your story will probably get interrupted by several small voices asking why exactly someone would want to eat body parts. Instead, the golden arm has the simpler motivation, greed, and a simpler object of desire, the golden arm. And because of this, the man in the story is significantly less sympathetic. As opposed to the other protagonists so far, he's not doing this for survival. Whereas the hunter, Mina Flint, and to some extent the old woman preparing for her guests were acting out of desperation for food. The widower here seems to be acting just out of desire for money? Much less sympathetic, so clearly a bad guy. But like the man from the gallows, the liver and taily poe, the golden arm raises an interesting central question. Who owns a body? There's an interesting question that all of these stories seem to be asking, and it's about the ownership of a body. Who owns a body and its parts, even after death? In many countries, this is a very real legal question. You own your body, and you get to decide what happens to it, even in death. It's why most countries have very specific laws about how much say other people or the government have over your body. And this can extend to things like forcing medical treatment on you, or what exactly you can put into your body or do to it. This is why in the United States, for example, you have to agree to donate your organs after death, or else said organs can't be used by anyone for anything, even if doing so could save someone's life. So from a legal standpoint, the actions of some of the characters in these stories isn't just icky, but also illegal, depending on location. Just because another body isn't using an organ at the moment doesn't necessarily give someone the right to take it for themselves or dictate how it's used. Not that I think the legality matters to the various revenants, ghosts, ghouls, and creatures featuring in these stories. But the return of each of these spirits and monsters raises some interesting questions. In the case of the man from the gallows and the liver, the creatures have a clear claim to the pieces taken from them. Maybe Tailypo too? It's murkier there. The problem in those cases is that these various pieces have already been eaten, and likely digested, meaning that they're now part of the living people in these stories, making the retrieval of set parts a teensy more complicated. And here's where we get to interesting questions about life and parts and the whole. How much of you is the things you've eaten? And how much of you is, well, you? Is there a clear dividing line between the two? Could you easily subtract a sandwich from yourself? Or a stew's worth of tail? Can you return something once consumed? And how can you make good on something not just taken from someone else, but made into a part of you? Do you now owe them an equal part of yourself? Can you return something of equal value? The exchange rate presented in these stories suggests a sort of grim arithmetic.
Since a person's continued life is a result of consuming a body part of the original owner, that life is now forfeit to the original owner of the body part. Hence the various revenants, the zombies, ghosts, and monsters, coming to collect on their stolen vitality by taking the lives of the thieves that consumed them. Here, at the heart of these stories, we find a very profound question. Who does your life belong to? How much of your life is yours? And how much of it do you owe in pieces to the things you've eaten? The fruits off of trees, individual grains, and each and every tailipo. Though perhaps the more frightening question is, what if they come in the middle of the night, long claws scrabbling, yellow eyes gleaming, to collect? Today's episode drew from essays by Jeannie Banks Thomas and Sylvia Ann Grider from the anthology Haunting Experiences, Ghosts in Contemporary Folklore. Edited by Diane E. Goldstein, Sylvia Ann Greider, and Jeannie Banks Thomas. Alvin Schwartz and Stephen Gamble's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark 3. And our cover art was created by the Wombo Dream app. If you enjoyed this episode of Trans Arcana and want more of our mixture of queer theory and occult lore, you can follow us on Twitter at Trans Arcana. That's T-R-A-N-S-A-R-C-A-N-A at Twitter.com. And, uh, don't eat any strange body parts you find lying around. You never know who's going to want them back.